What? College matters. What? College, college matters. matters. Really? For sure. College matters. Alma, Alma matters. If we <laughs> take our course offerings and we make those really progressive with a combination of online, virtual, hybrid, all these great things, plus face-to-face on campus, mm-hmm. but we don't do the same things with all our high-impact practices. So mm-hmm. student research is still something that's physically on campus in people's laboratories. Right. We, ha- we haven't, we're, we're kind of at a point of being disjointed. That is Dr. Jennifer Coleman, professor of psychology at the Western New Mexico University. Hello, I'm your host, Venkat Raman. When Professor Coleman was in college, she really liked the life that the parents of a close friend of hers were leading. They were university professors and she wanted to emulate them. They advised her to find a professor whose class she really liked and asked to do research in their lab. She did. That UG research started her off into the decades-long journey into academia and research. Professor Coleman joins us on our podcast to talk about undergraduate research at the Western New Mexico University Kerr's role, enabling research online, impact of research, success stories, and advice for high schoolers. Now, before we jump into the podcast, here are the high fives, five highlights from the podcast. I guess it's um... 10 years ago now, I started a, uh, it's almost like a GoFundMe, and it's funded by students. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a research fund for students on campus, and it was the first of its kind at my university. It's the only of its kind at the university. It's actually, uh, there are other models out there at other universities, but it's not all that common. I've So our relationship with Kerr is relatively new. It's about four years old. Um, mm-hmm. And so uh, we use it in a variety of different ways. We have a few faculty on campus who will access Kerr and find uh, research placement opportunities for students and then promote those across campus, letting students know those, those opportunities are available. Start of the year, we set out, we outline the things we're going to do that year. Mm-hmm. One of those categories is scholarship. One of those categories mm-hmm. is service. Mm-hmm. So because we're a teaching institution and our primary focus is students, when you look at many of our objectives related to scholarship, they engage students in it. So in terms of infrastructure, the very um, theme that runs through the design of our institution is that we reach out and we serve students. It's another thing to then take that to that other level of not only do I know how to ask a question and I know how to find out what's already known about this question, but I also know how to put things in place to come up with answers so I can make a contribution. The advice that was given to me was, well, whose class do you enjoy? What class do you like going to? Mm-hmm. What professor is enthusiastic and has a way of being in the room that just appeals to you? That could be the person to go up to and say, hey, I need some mentoring. I, I'm not sure what I want or where I'm going. Can I, could I talk to you about that? These were the high fives brought to you by College Matters. Alma Matters. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Now, I'm sure you want to hear the entire podcast with Professor Coleman. So without further ado, here is Professor Jennifer Coleman. If you're ready, we can jump right in. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. Sure. Cool. So maybe the best place to start is uh, give us a little bit about your background, and uh, then we can make our way through the research part. Sure. Uh, I am a first-generation college student, but I am not first in family. 
So mm-hmm. I'm the young, youngest of five uh, children in my family, and I was fortunate to have visited the colleges of my older siblings. And mm-hmm. uh, I have a sister closest in age to me. Um, and I don't know if you want this much depth of background, but it's relevant to my journey sure. to research. Sure. Um, sure. A sister closest in age who really was my guide when it came to college. But to be honest, when I got to school, I was still somewhat clueless. Mm -hmm, (laughs) Uh, It took me it took me three years to declare my major um, Mm -hmm. to really find what where I was meant to be. I did graduate from the State University of New York at Geneseo with my bachelor's Mm -hmm. in psychology. Mm -hmm. I had some real key experiences when I was at Geneseo related to research and Those led me to graduate school at the University of New Hampshire. My background Mm -hmm. in research is in sensation and perception. I studied human vision for a couple years. Mm -hmm. Uh, I did research in cognitive psychology and um, I'm really what I would view now as a generalist practitioner with uh, a varied range of interests across the curriculum. You mentioned um doing research, undergraduate research during your undergraduate years. Um, What or how did that happen? Oh, it's one of my favorite stories, honestly, um, because it was so life altering for me. Mm -hmm. Uh, When I was at Geneseo, um, which it's important to know the context in which you go to school really does matter. So at Geneseo, it's a liberal arts school the emphasis there is on teaching. You know, people are hired to work there to be mm-hmm. great teachers. Mm-hmm. Um, and so when I was there, I, I found people I wanted to emulate. I, I discovered what interested me by seeing people around me who I thought, I like their life and that's what I want to do. Mm-hmm. I happened to um, have somebody really close to me in college whose parents were both university professors. Mm-hmm. I saw that and I really had a strong response of, I want that life. I thought it was super cool that his father would sit in a sunroom patio that they had and listen to classical music and grade papers on the weekends. <laughs> you know, it just, <laughs> it was, I mean, I hate to sound like it was so um, cookie cutter, you know, the stereotypical image of a university professor, but that really was was what I saw him doing. And they went to right. art galleries and they went to concerts and listened to music. And um, it was a, a, a slightly different lifestyle from my family growing up and yeah. it looked really neat to me. And uh-huh. so I, I was lucky to ask, you know, have their mentorship in my life to say, you know, what do I, if I want to make X happen, what do I need to do to get to that point in the alphabet? Sure. And so uh, they told me, you know, find a professor that you like, who in the classroom, you just think is a rock star and talk to that person and see what they're doing outside of the classroom. And I did that. And um, John, John Sparrow is his name. He was a Mm -hmm. faculty member at that time at SUNY Geneseo. He was Mm -hmm. teaching a class that I, I just thought his teaching style was fantastic. And I went up to him after class one day and said, I'm interested in getting involved in this discipline, going to graduate school. Um, are you doing any research outside of the classroom? Uh And he uh, welcomed me into his laboratory and there were eventually three of us working in his lab. Uh And he also happened to have been an alum of the University of New Hampshire. So when I was doing my graduate school application process, I was looking at a bunch of schools throughout different areas of the country. And he one day just happened to say, you know, have you thought about the University of New Hampshire? And I hadn't, they weren't on my radar for a variety of reasons, but that program really was super well suited for my interest. He uh-huh. knew it had an emphasis on college teaching that they didn't just want to produce great researchers in the field of psychology, but they also wanted to produce people who would go out and be wonderful uh, faculty members also. And so I applied to UNH I went to UNH. It was a wonderful fit. Yeah. Um, I, as a message to students and parents out there, you know, I think it's really important to realize that every relationship, every exposure we have to something new is a chance to realize something new about ourselves. Mm-hmm. So those were my moments of somebody's parents and a faculty member being in my life at the right time to facilitate my journey beginning. That's an amazing story. Now, obviously, 
this was super important and it worked for you. Now, how do you see this translating to other students, all the stu undergraduate students of today? Oh, you know, maybe the undergraduate students of today are even in a better position than I was mm -hmm. in that their access to the world and different ways of being and different versions of adult life and work are, they're just so available to them. And for me, I had to look at the people who were proximate, right? I didn't have access right. to the internet. Right. Uh, it, it existed, but I just yeah. didn't have access. <laughs> no one did in that area, except probably right. top government officials. Um, so I, again, it's just that issue of pay attention to what's around you. I mean, allow yourself to notice what you like and uh you don't have to fit into a mold that's the beauty of the uniqueness of human humanity is we get to be ourselves and figure out what it is that brings us joy and makes us feel fulfilled and uh, high school students now get to experience college earlier mm -hmm. to some extent we do have dual enrollment happening and we do have some early college courses and we have advanced placement but even if those things are not happening, I really want to make sure that I'm sensitive not only to the traditional, what we call the quote unquote traditional student, that right. 16 to 18 year old who's looking at college and starting at 18 or so, but also the person who took time off, who's still trying to figure out if I go back to college, what would that look like? What would I go for? Mm -hmm. um, I often will it advise students who are very undecided. I don't know what I want to do. How do I figure that out? And one of the exercises I have them do, mm -hmm. there are two of them. One is figure out what you don't like. Sometimes you have much more awareness of what you don't like. And you could do what I call a declaration by elimination, yeah. where instead of declaring your major, you actually eliminate the things you don't want. And soon uh -huh. enough, you start to realize what you do want to do is more obvious. The other one is to sit back and actually just think about what you covet, you know, mm -hmm. what, whose life do you envy and what does that look like to get that life? For me, the observation was not about money, affluence, power, authority. It was not about those things for me. It was about, um, I mean, some of it was about the arts, enjoyment of the arts and having right. that be part of somebody's lifestyle and identity. And part of it was security, stability. Um, so again, for me, my influence was things that were proximate for people today with the internet and social media and the world of connectivity that we have. Um, I, I can imagine things could be overwhelming at times. How do you choose when you're aware of how many items are on the buffet? Maybe a small buffet is better than a big buffet, but go out and try some things on, you know, see how that feels and uh, pursue it further. And I guess another just thing would be put yourself out there. Sure. Uh, if you sit, yeah, if you sit at home on social media, I don't know that you're actually realizing your own potential, but you surely are contributing to that of others. So now turn that around and engage yourself in what interests you and have others support you. Cool. So let's talk about the role you're playing today um, in terms of uh, coordinating and making undergraduate research possible. Um, tell us a little bit about that. Uh, so I work now, I'm a professor at Western New Mexico University, which is a, a small regional school in the southwestern corner of the state of New Mexico. Mm -hmm. And I've been there almost 20 years. Mm -hmm. uh, similar to Geneseo, the emphasis at, at schools of, and this is something for everybody to consider, different schools have different areas of emphasis. Right. You know, very large schools versus smaller schools. Um, and the emphasis at my university really is the teaching experience, working with students directly. Mm -hmm. So just like every faculty member on my campus, I have, I I carry that role with everybody else. We all are responsible for being present for our students, uh, having our students and their learning being our number one priority mm -hmm. over 
you know, perhaps at a research institution where faculty are teaching less, their emphasis is more on advancing the scholarship in the field, which mm -hmm. is wonderful because then we get to take that scholarship and share it with more students. Sure. So um, I also, uh, I guess it's um, 10 years ago now, I started a, uh, it's almost like a GoFundMe and it's funded by students. Mm -hmm. um, it's a research fund for students on campus. And it was the first of its kind at my university. It's the only of its kind at the university. It's actually, uh, there are other models out there at other universities, but it's not all that common. I've taken this to conferences and presented and shared it with other faculty and students. And mm -hmm. I often get a, a really wonderful response of, we didn't know we could do this. This is so great. Right. Uh, basically what I did was I, I was mentoring students in classes doing research as course-based undergraduate research mm -hmm. and what I what I noticed with those students was we were fundraising to go to conferences outside of class mm -hmm. more than we were actually spending time on the scholarship in class so we mm -hmm. had this inverted relationship with our research where 80% of our time was spent fundraising 20% of our time was actually doing the work right. and that bothered me the mm -hmm. students were wonderful and everybody was enthusiastic about the process, but it didn't seem like the best use of our, use of our time. Right. And so I went to the provost at the time and said, can I put together a proposal to create a student fee? So mm -hmm. the students would all pitch in a few dollars here and there based on their credit hour enrollment. And that money would become a savings account for the student body. Mm -hmm. and students could apply for loans basically, or they were grants. They don't have to pay them back. I started that 10 years ago. It is still uh, in existence. It's actually, um, I think, 16-fold the funding it was when I started it. Wow. So, mm -hmm. yes, yeah, actually, I think it's mathematically much more than that, but I should have done the math before we got on this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> um, it started out, I think, at $0.08 cents an hour or $0.07 cents an hour per credit hour. So each student was only paying in, you know, under a dollar. Mm-hmm. Um, but in the year, course of a year, it generated, you know, $16,000 or something. And now it generates anywhere from sixty dollars to $80,000 a year. And mm -hmm. um, it depends. Of course, it varies with enrollment. So it's not a stable um, yeah. budget line, but it's a constant recurring budget line. So it is, yeah. it's not stable, but it's consistent. So, or it's consistent, but not stable, whichever way you want to apply those concepts. Sure. Um, so that was kind of my effort. I, in terms of my role at the university, uh, I was the founder of that and I oversaw that for seven years. It's now under the uh, incredibly capable leadership of other people. And now I'm a, just a champion, like all the other faculty members on campus. We share that role. How are you guys leveraging Kerr? Um, uh, that's a wonderful question. Yeah. Um, so Kerr, Kerr has a, a really neat mission to support us really across the campus. So mm -hmm. they support the administrators, somebody who might be running an office of undergraduate research. They're available for faculty who want to be enriched in their efforts and they're available for students. Mm -hmm. So our relationship with Kerr is relatively new. It's about four years old. Um, mm -hmm. And so uh, we use it in a variety of different ways. We have a few faculty on campus who will access Kerr and find uh, research placement opportunities for students and then promote those across campus, letting students know those, those opportunities are available. Mm -hmm. So that's, that's a very direct way that we can use Kerr to directly serve students. I have used Kerr a lot for my own professional development mm -hmm. and I think part of the way in which we came together is related to this. Um, I went to Kerr in the summer of 2018, looking for people who were talking about research with undergraduates at a distance, you know, mm -hmm. the remote student, the online student. Right. And there really, uh, at that time, was no dialogue happening about that. Mm -hmm. And it was a woman who at the time was with Kerr. She was the director of membership there, Robin Howard. Mm -hmm. She connected me with Nancy Hensel uh, about collaborating on a book project. And last spring, uh, Nancy Hensel, Bill Campbell, and I, the three of us, 
co-edited a volume that was published with Stylus in collaboration with Kerr and with AACNU, and mm-hmm. it's specifically a book about doing undergraduate research with online, virtual, and hybrid students. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so Kerr has had a, a really important role for me, and I, you know, bring opportunities to students as much as possible as do other faculty using Kerr's resources. There's another thing, um, Kerr has a listserv and a place, a Kerr community where you can go in and you could post a question. Mm-hmm. Like how do people at your institution handle summer research uh, regard, regarding this particular issue? And instantly, you know, within moments, you'll get start getting responses. And over the course of a couple of weeks, you get, you know, this dialogue going among colleagues. So it's, Kerr has facilitated all of us across the country and beyond, because it's an international organization, coming together to do the best by our students, which is just, I mean, that's invaluable. I kind of wanted to see what um, infrastructure or resources um, your students get, your students, meaning the students at the university, get to do research. I mean, what, what kind of um, framework or what kind of help are you providing in addition to the funds? Oh, yes. Okay, great. Uh, and I'll, I'll bring up the funds again because they help even with some infrastructure or some developmental support towards sure. students. Um, so we're small, and I know that you have great knowledge in this area. Small schools often will not have a dedicated office of undergraduate research mm-hmm. uh, or possibly even a person with the title director or coordinator of undergraduate research. We have had an evolving, um, so a couple years ago, we did have somebody in the position of director of undergraduate research. Mm -hmm. And when that individual moved away from the university for other opportunities, the position was not retained. So um, we have an ebb and flow of that. So, Mm -hmm. you know, if you go to a big university, uh, I can think of one that's near me, there are like six offices of undergraduate research across campus. Mm-hmm. Um, other schools will have one very centralized office. It might be undergraduate research and high impact practices or undergraduate research sponsored programs. Mm-hmm. It's interesting at my institution right now, I might be able to say we don't have a dedicated office, but mm-hmm. the interesting thing about a small school is the, we don't necessarily need a dedicated office when it's integrated into the role of every faculty member on campus. Mm. So um, a, an interesting thing for students and parents to be aware of is that just like any other job in the world, uh, faculty members have expectations that are put on them every year. Mm-hmm. And typically we design those expectations ourselves. So at my university, we do what's called a management by objectives. And every year mm-hmm. at the start of the year, we set out, we outline the things we're going to do that year. Mm-hmm. One of those categories is scholarship. One of those categories mm-hmm. is service. Mm-hmm. So because we're a teaching institution and our primary focus is students, when you look at many of our objectives related to scholarship, they engage students in it. So in terms of infrastructure, the very, um, theme that runs through the design of our institution is that we reach out and we serve students. Hmm. So we have all faculty across campus um, as champions for student experiences in and outside of the classroom. Now, in terms of student infrastructures that a student could access, Mm -hmm. one of the things we did when I, when we created student research and it's that fund that I created is called student research and professional development funds. Mm -hmm. And it's, uh, there are always faculty who serve as advisors for that committee, but the committee is actually composed of students and every mm-hmm. single funding decision that is made is made by students because after all, it's their money, right? Mm-hmm. It's their savings mm-hmm. account. So mm-hmm. nobody else should make decisions with it. Yeah. That fund is available for students to get, to buy equipment. Mm-hmm. So if a, if a student's working with a faculty member and they realize they need to buy some reagents to do a chemistry experiment or they need to buy some clay because they're developing something in a pottery studio, mm-hmm. uh, SRPD funds can provide that funding. So research equipment is there. 
uh, training, if a student wants to go to a workshop where they experience some professional development or maybe mm -hmm. take an online class related to the appropriate treatment of human participants in research, SRPD funds is there for them for that. And then on the other side is the issue of traveling to conferences to present, not only to attend, but to present at conferences, our students yeah. can get funding to do that. So the infrastructure is, if I can kind of come back and summarize it, it's a thread that goes through the faculty emphasis and values and efforts that we put forward. It's also built into the student government structure because student government is the entity that approved that fund. The students are the ones who continue to fill the bank account and students are the ones allocating those funds to other students. So it's a collaboration on our campus of, of all those parties with the administration supporting it along the way by allowing us to, to have this focus in our work that we do. One um, you know, random unsolicited <laughs> suggestion I can give you is, you know, you might think of matching funds as well. So that that might be something that uh, might be interesting to increase the kitty and maybe do more things. But uh, but I think absolutely. <laughs> I'm. I hope you you keep that in the recording because that <laughs> that's something I proposed years ago was matching funds, and that kind of is the model. Uh, just to give a shout out to the administration, that is the model when the administration comes in and puts somebody in place to be a director yeah. of undergraduate research. They basically are doing fund matching. And right now, the faculty who are coordinating the SRPD funds, they get support from the administration to do that. So the administration is definitely there, definitely showing support. And I'll be honest, you know, over the last 10 years, every single year, our student fees are reevaluated. Every year, the president works with the student government to, you know, help them get insight in how to prioritize things and where to maybe reduce fees and allow students to save money or where to take an asset and shift it to a new area because it would serve students better in that way. And our university leadership has, from student and administration, has not only protected SRPD funds, but allowed those funds to grow over the last 10 years. So they are definitely showing their backing, but you are right. We can always use, you can always use more. You can always throw more <laughs> money at the problem. <laughs> I'm open to that. <laughs> unfortunately, unfortunately true. So let's move on. And I kind of wanted to talk to you about uh, campus research and doing research online. This is something that you've been very passionate about. So share with us what you see are the benefits of doing stuff virtually or online and how that either um, adds to the campus-based research or separately just a good individual thing. Oh, sure. Uh, thank you for asking about that. And you are correct that it's uh, really just become an incredible passion of mine to argue for equity for all students and opportunities for all students. Mm -hmm. And this this is pre-pandemic for me, and I might be one of the only people during the pandemic who was like having this reaction of, oh, finally, other people will understand <laughs> the possibilities that uh, online offers us. So I've been doing undergraduate research with students since the mid-90s. Mm -hmm. And I myself was an undergraduate researcher before that. Mm -hmm. And my university has gone, we went partially online about 15 years ago, 16 years ago. Mm -hmm. um, we were online a tiny bit before that in a very limited area. And then we decided to kind of bring it across the curriculum in mm -hmm. 2006 or so. Mm -hmm. Now we're unique because we're in a, we're a, small school in a remote area mm -hmm. of the country and um, it's rural. So we have students who are traveling to campus. And uh, if you remember back in 2007, when the economy crashed right. and gas prices and, you know, people's personal wealth was impacted so greatly, offering online classes offered uh, economics, sa economical savings for our students. Mm-hmm. And when you have non-traditional students also, our university has a 
a vast number of non-traditional students that we're passionate about serving. It's really important to respect that students don't always have school as their job. They actually mm -hmm. have another job too, and school is something that has to fit in. And you know, we have this emphasis in our country that we want to educate as many people as possible, right? Complete College America is a national right. initiative. But then we also are struggling a little bit to shift college such that it could work for all adults. Right. You know, when we offer classes Monday through Friday during business hours, we don't exactly accommodate most Americans. So my university has definitely been a champion in trying to accommodate as many learners as possible. Mm -hmm. So we're at a point where a significant portion of our enrollment is taking online classes. Even the students in the dorms sometimes like to take at least one online class so that their schedule also has that flexibility mm -hmm. added in. Mm -hmm. And so if we, if we <laughs> take our course offerings and we make those really progressive with a combination of online, virtual, hybrid, all these great things, plus face-to-face -face on campus, Mm -hmm. But we don't do the same things with all our high impact practices. So student research is still something that's physically on campus in people's laboratories. Right. We have we haven't we're, we're kind of at a point of being disjointed. So I've been ringing the bell saying, hey, if we are offering if 50 percent of our enrollment is online, then 50 percent of our uh, co-curricular opportunities also need to be online. Mm hmm. Now, when you go to a Kerr conference, the truth of the community of undergraduate research is that most people involved in undergraduate research are physically on campus and yeah. that's what they're used to doing. And that was true for me too. Mm -hmm. um, four years ago, I became a remote faculty member, which was mm. quite you know, earth, sh earth shaking for me mm -hmm. in that it was a change in my career at you know, 26 years in so that made me realize I had an interesting kind of split experience. When I became a remote professor, I had, I had been working in administration for many years. I, in order to be moved to a distant location from, I'm only three hours away, but that still feels really far. Yeah. Um, I had to kind of let go of some of my administrative roles, move back to being full-time faculty. I had always stayed faculty, but I moved back to teaching more courses. Mm -hmm. What I noticed from my colleagues was a lot of people just stopped communicating as if mm -hmm. I didn't exist anymore. Mm -hmm. um, and whereas in the past when I was on campus, they would pick up a phone and call me and connect with me, somehow dialing those extra three digits was cognitive overload or something and they, <laughs> they stopped calling. So I realized my experience was giving me a really unique insight into the experience of remote students. Yeah. who also, at times, they feel very connected to the university in some ways, but in other ways, not so much. And I paid attention, you know, we learn really well from our own experiences. So I paid yeah. attention yeah. to what does this feel like for me? And what do I need to do to make it better for me? And what would I love other people to do too? And so I went to Kerr to see who's talking about doing research with undergraduate students at a distance. And I realized almost nobody because that's not who's showing up at Kerr. Mm -hmm. and, and then the pandemic hit and everybody wanted to talk about doing undergraduate research with students at a distance. Everybody, everybody yeah. wanted to talk about it. Yeah, yeah. Um, unfortunately, our book wasn't ready when the pandemic hit. Our book came two years into or a year and a half into the pandemic. So it it wasn't perfectly timed to benefit everyone who was having questions about that. Um, but, you know, I just, I know one of the things you and I are going to talk about today are some of the success stories. And so if I can introduce one of those here now. Sure. Um, I teach online and I, when I'm in my classes and I notice students with inquiring minds based on what they're posting, I sometimes will uh, poke them. You know, I send them a little email saying, you're writing in such a way and you're asking questions in such a way. Have you ever thought about undergraduate research? It seems mm -hmm. to be consistent with the nature of the way you think. Have you ever thought about that? Mm -hmm. So I did this last year. I, I do it to a lot of students across classes and I, I do integrate undergraduate research into all of my classes. Mm -hmm. So I'm definitely pushing everybody a little to just at least think about it as an opportunity mm -hmm. for themselves. But I, 
spoke to a few students last year very directly. You know, I nudged them and said, hey, this is, this is something you might really want to think about. It seems to resonate with you. Mm-hmm. And uh, I spent the summer, I invited two students to become research assistants of mine this past summer. They both happen to be named Katie. So I mm-hmm. call them the Katie's. And mm-hmm. one is based in Maryland. One is based in Arizona. So they're both mm-hmm. distant from our campus. Mm-hmm. And the shift that being involved in undergraduate research has created for them in terms of their sense of belongingness, in terms of their sense of connection to the university, their connection to me, to a professor, uh, their sense of bringing their their identity as a member of their discipline, not mm-hmm. just their identity as a university student, but their identity sure. as I belong in this domain. I yeah. am part of this society of scholarship and research and psychology and we're actually looking at uh, online students and distance students and their sense of belonging at university. So they're getting to examine their own issues at some level. Sure. Um, now, let me, I do want to just add, Yeah. R- working with remote students is something that some disciplines have done for forever. I mean, if we think about the issue of the field research in natural yeah. sciences. So I'm just arguing that for some of our, our, there are universities throughout the country that have more of an online identity. And I'm just hoping to see more of our high impact practices, more of our on-campus practices translating into opportunities for our online initiatives that we have. So just bringing the good stuff with us when we, you know, if we pick up and we move camp, let's take our stuff with us and offer these great things to everybody. What, what do you think the students who are doing research are getting out of it? What I mean by that is, you know, there's obviously in-class, whether it is in-class or remote instruction, but the whole knowledge creation aspect, what, what is it bringing to the students? Uh, you said it very well. Uh, it is that knowledge creation. It is that chance to exercise inquisitive, you know, being an inquirer of Mm -hmm. the field. So asking questions and it's one thing to ask questions. It's one thing to go to the literature to answer your questions, which Mm -hmm. is obviously something we want educated people to do. Mm -hmm. It's another thing to then take that to that other level of not only do I know how to ask a question and I know how to find out what's already known about this question, but I also know how to put things in place to come up with answers so I can make a contribution. And I want to bring this to, you know, across the, across the whole campus, across all disciplines, fully across the curriculum. You know, there could be a student in literature who asks the question of a particular thing, you know, an interpretation and goes to the literature to see what other scholars have said and realizes you know, people are not talking about this enough. I will be the person who talks about this. Mm -hmm. Uh, I, you know, I get goosebumps just thinking about that moment of realization from a student that they're not a student. I mean, think about that. Are you a student still? If you're the one contributing to knowledge formation, you're, you're, you're not, you're not really the student anymore you're now the scholar, you're now the teacher, you're creating what there is to be known. It's super powerful. And I do think, you know, for students who don't themselves want to become the researcher, being exposed to it is still a chance to have a deeper appreciation of, oh, this is how this stuff happens. Mm -hmm. Now I understand, you know, now when the Center for Disease Control rolls out research findings, that makes more sense to me. I don't want to be the person doing it, perhaps, but at least I have an appreciation for that process. And, you know, criticism of it as well. I might understand its limitations a little bit more at times, and that allows me to be a more critical thinker, a a better consumer, and a better contributor to understanding. What 
percentage of the students are doing undergraduate research, you think? I wish I could answer that with a, a good number. That is something we, uh, we, we should step up and monitor a little better. I know in some fields it's 100%. So I know in natural sciences, they have capstone courses. That's, a, that's 100% over there. Even in other disciplines, there's a senior project required in areas, uh, literature and art. Um, and there, if we remind ourselves that research encompasses research scholarship and creative activities, so it's important, creative works, it's important to appreciate across the curriculum sure. that different words apply differently. My students are getting 100% exposure to undergraduate research because, again, I'm integrating it into classes. There's mm -hmm. that course-based undergraduate research experiences model. Um, I think our percentage is probably very, very high mm -hmm. uh, because I know it, it meets that philosophical approach. We also have small class sizes, so we can do uh, those experiences. In our, in our school of education, there's a real emphasis on what they, we call action research. Mm -hmm. So noticing an issue that's happening live in the classroom and strategically inserting a, an intervention and then monitoring systematically whether or not that intervention matters. So even in the realm of field work, like mm -hmm. in education, we have an orientation driving students toward being research. So, you know, if I take a, the definition of what qualifies as undergraduate research, we could look as a continuum. We're on a more laxed liberal interpretation of the concept, mm -hmm. our percentage would be very high. If we're looking at students producing publications and co-authoring things with faculty and presenting at conferences, um, I think we're doing really, really well. Of course, our number's lower there as it is across all campuses. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think, I think the most important thing is that they do research whether, you know, it goes to the next step of publishing or presenting. It's different matter but yeah yeah it sounds like you've integrated it into a lot of courses so i think the numbers are going to be high now uh, and it's across disciplines which is another wonderful thing you know i thought maybe um, if you had any uh, anecdote or vignette or story about one or two students or the research they did um you know over the years that you've been you know, pursuing this or helping students. That'd be great, uh, great for our listeners to hear. Sure, I, I, I'll share a couple. Mm -hmm. um, when we think about success coming out of undergraduate research, I think we often think of standard definitions of success. Yeah. Um, and, I, you know, I'll give a few of those for the listener. So those are clear. I mean, one would be somebody like me who as an undergraduate, because of exposure to undergraduate research, that opened the door to a PhD program, which mm -hmm. led me to give back in the ways that I'm giving back. And I have a bunch of those examples, you know, a student, Susan Lutz in New Jersey, who's now a faculty member, um, a student, Ashley Newell, who was an undergraduate at Western New Mexico University, who uh, is now a doctor. She, she was an undergraduate researcher with me. She was part of a group of students who went to a conference and won a best empirical research award for work that they did not think, they didn't think it was very good because one thing that happens in the research experience is you often step in a bunch of potholes and yeah. twist your ankle and and they had just the hardest time with their project and then they went to a conference, presented it and won an award. And they, that was just such a wonderful uh, way to wrap up their work. But right. she opened doors to things like medical school. Um, I have a colleague now, David Swackhammer, who was an undergraduate researcher just finished his doctoral degree and is a university uh, instructor. Um, uh, some of students, like a colleague I have, Andrew Joy, ended up being an adjunct for our university for a while, stayed on for graduate studies, and is now working in corporate America. Mm. So the success stories in terms of you know research opening doors, sometimes it leads to doors in academia, sometimes it leads to professional work like medicine and sometimes other avenues. So sure. definitely a, a traditional resume builder. But I wanna 
also tell you some maybe unexpected, smaller, but to me sometimes even more significant um, success stories. So Mm -hmm. one example I always love to give is at students who were going to a conference to present research and some of the students in the class were going to be presenting and other students in the class were not. And I gave those students the option of still going. You know, if you're not presenting, but you still want to go, feel free to come along. Mm-hmm. I had one student in particular who, when it was time to decide who was going to submit to the conference, she was just adamant. I don't feel ready. I'm intimidated. I'm too new to this. I, I just don't feel ready. So she was one of the students who came along just as an observer. Mm-hmm. And she approached me maybe a day or so into the conference, came up to me, you know, tugging on my arm, Dr. Coleman, Dr. Coleman, I can do this. I can do this. I just, I don't know why I was so hesitant to do this. I am, you know, so in that moment, she had that ability to see herself as capable and competent. Mm -hmm. And um, to me, that's, you know, was there a kind of a concrete, she got into (laughs) graduate school no or she landed that job no but it shifted her and that personal shift is arguably more important um and then the other success story i would tell are the katie's that i'm working with this summer yeah and that i worked with this summer and that i'm still working with now you know the katie's went from feeling kind of invisible and Mm -hmm. unseen Mm-hmm. to feeling completely engaged. They're both now presenting at a national conference that's being hosted in Tucson, Arizona in November. Mm-hmm. They're coming in from their respective locations. We get to spend a couple days in person together. They, uh, they just feel a certain level of fulfillment from the opportunity to, to be engaged and to have a project. And I mean, I can't say enough good things about the students with whom I've had the pleasure of working. They're all success stories. Even the students who try it on and drop it because it doesn't work for them, I still see that as a success because they learned something more about themselves. They put themselves out there. They tried something on. You know, you can't buy a new pair of shoes unless you pick a pair out and see whether or not they fit. So Absolutely. For the students and parents out there, you know, that I don't even like to say the big F word failure is sometimes a success. So when things don't work, it's not always a bad thing. As we start winding down here, Jennifer, um, what kind of advice would you give high school students who are looking at college? how should they prepare themselves to do research on campus? Oh, such a good question. Um, Part of me wants to say, don't do anything. You're already ready. Mm. So don't feel like you're not ready (laughs) because if you feel like you're not, you're not ready, you may not put yourself out there. So part of me wants to immediately say, don't do anything. There's just one, you don't need to get yourself ready. You, but you do need to put yourself out there. Right. So um, part of that is also just a mantra of don't underestimate yourself, be your own best champion. There's so many challenges in the world. You don't have to add to those. Right. So be be your own cheerleader. Um, I do think that issue of pay attention. So when you, the advice that was given to me was, well, whose class do you enjoy? What class do you like going to? Mm -hmm. What professor is enthusiastic and has a way of being in the room that just appeals to you? that could be the person to go up to and say, Hey, I need some mentoring. I, I'm not sure what I want or where I'm going. Can I, could I talk to you about that? Mm-hmm. And, you know, I, I often will say this because students will say, well, what if they don't want to talk to me? I said, well, then nothing has changed. You're in the same spot you were to begin with. Okay. So don't, don't see that as a bad thing. If they say, sorry, I'm really busy. I already have eight students that I'm mentoring. Okay. You're exactly where you were when they, before they said no. So move along and find somebody else to ask the same question of, you'll find your right, your right person in your right spot. I would say, um, remember that there are opportunities at every school. Mm -hmm. So again, kind of going back to my view of 
if you find the school that's right for you, then that school's awesome. That school's fantastic. Mm-hmm. So it, whether or not it's big or small, whether or not it's, you know, um, online or in person, when you find what's right for you, create the opportunities that you want to have. And, you know, you, I think they will be there for you. Um, and, you know, just put, again, just that issue of put yourself out there. So in my opinion, if you're thinking about engaging, that means you're already ready to engage. Because if you weren't ready, you wouldn't be thinking about it. Cool. So, so just do it. <laughs> that's trade. That's trademarked, though. So I didn't say that. <laughs> I know. It's as easy as that. Um, yeah. So Jennifer, thank you so much for taking the time. Uh, this has been a fascinating conversation, and I am sure I want to talk more about this with you in the future. But for right now, take care. Be safe. Thank you so much. Thank you immensely, and you take care as well. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. Hi again. Hope you enjoyed our podcast with Professor Jennifer Coleman of the Western New Mexico University about undergraduate research. Specifically, Professor Coleman covered how undergraduate research impacted her. The UG research resources available to their students and faculty enabling research online, student success stories, and finally, advice for high schoolers. I hope you pursue research during your undergraduate years and explore the Western New Mexico University for your own undergraduate studies. For your questions or comments on this podcast, please email podcast at almamatters.io. Thank you all so much for listening to our podcast today. Transcripts for this podcast and previous podcasts are on almamatters.io forward slash podcasts. To stay connected with us, subscribe to Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify, or visit anchor.fm forward slash almamatters to check us out. Till we meet again, take care and be safe. Thank you. College matters. Alma Alma matters. matters.